Hey friends, if this is your first time listening to the Spillway podcast, we encourage you to start at the prologue and work your way up to this sequential episode. If you choose to forge on despite this plea, keep these four things in mind. First, we are a serial. Our work is relational, and the beginning episodes are about building trust, familiarity, and shared frameworks and contexts. And also, white people talking to white people about white people things is a newer concept for a lot of folks. We don't want to push people into the deep end. So please, save yourself the headache. We'll be here when you're caught up. Two, stay in your own lane. We build space to examine, critique, hold, and love white people as we navigate pushback and relapse in the mechanics of white supremacy and white shame within white culture and white culture alone. And that's however much we can in the fluidity of culture. Three, we're in the combined fabric of destiny. Our humanity, as Dr. King defines, is interrelated. Everyone is caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be, and you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of reality. That's point one. Point 3.5, we are a piece of the broader racial justice movement. We're not trying to divert resources nor claim that we're a one-stop shop. Being in cross-cultural community, educating ourselves, and being in good relation is unquestionably vital to our work. This show is about white people, cleaning and mending our own section of the fabric and the work we need to do before, during, and after showing up in shared spaces. And lastly, one right way. This form of grounding empathy, compassion, patience, and understanding at the core of white culture may or may not work for everyone. That's okay. There are other resources out there. We all share the same goal as beautifully defined by Adrienne Marie Brown to create a world where everyone experiences abundance, access, pleasure, human rights, dignity, freedom, transformative justice, peace. We long for this. We believe it is possible. We're trying this approach, but that doesn't mean that it's the best or right approach for you. If it doesn't apply, let it fly. And with that, for better or worse, we began entering the spillway. So like I flash forward and I think about when I moved out to the East Coast and mm-hmm. start talking about race with people, there was always this immediate reputation or uh, kind of like stereotype around folks out West and the Midwest mm-hmm. um, that were just stupid, that we just don't have the same education or that like an East Coast education is just so much better. Um, and I think- yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. Yep. That was a big thing at our, can I call AMDA by AMDA or should I not call AMDA by AMDA at our, where, where we went to college, if Mm -hmm. you will, the Mm -hmm. first time, um, you know, I'd say it was from Texas and they're like, Oh, that education system. (laughs) I was like, huh? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, okay. And one of the things that I noticed is that people in that like assumptions that they were making, part of it was only semi-true and that we had very different uh, like social sciences. We were learning very Uh different things. And so even, even, well, even when I think about science, like we could go out and look at mountains and go look at geology in a very different way than you could back East and well, like and vice versa. Right. But um one of the major conversations that I kept having was uh, that I didn't know the intricacies of the civil war as much because I knew, because that wasn't taught to me in the same way that it was back East because it actually happened back East and Colorado was never oh. part of the civil war. And so when we gotcha. were talking about like the history of Colorado, all right, it's not us. That seems, that seems true for me also. But I don't know if I'm just like latching onto your yeah. memory or if 
Yeah, because we spent, I mean, a ton of time, not to roll my eyes, because there's, a, you know, but we spent a ton of time learning about the Alamo. What was the Alamo? And I don't know. I was busy sweating. I was busy sweating through my shirts and thinking of, you know, about sex, probably. Yeah. So yeah, that makes sense. I have no idea <laughs> what the, <laughs> it's a movie with John Wayne. Oh, it's a movie? And not. Oh, yeah. I have no idea. Oh, my gosh. You should Literally, watch it. It's the really... only thing I know about the Alamo is from King of the Hill. That's all I know. <laughs> you know more than I do. Um, yeah, they were... I don't know. It's one of those... <sighs> we were probably trying to steal something. Hmm. And then, and then we got stuck in the Alamo. Everybody died. Everybody got killed. Um, but I don't is, know why. Is that why no you idea. have to remember it? Remember the Alamo? <laughs> right. I feel like that's the tagline. I even went there. <gasps> like, I know it wasn't. It was for Daria's wedding. It wasn't as a kid. I never went there. But Daria got married in in San Antonio. And I even went there, and I still don't know. This, you know how I don't remember dates or names or any like really important information. <laughs> that, wow. That, yeah. Wow is a good way to put it. It's, yeah. Yeah. There's no judgment. It's not my, there's absolutely no judgment because I am with you. I am with you 100%. There's some stuff in Colorado. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that happened. So excited. Yeah. Oh, another fucking yeah, mining town. Cool. What did they mine for here? <laughs> That's so exciting. Although there was, oh, there was this one. There's this uh, cannibal named Alfred Packer. <laughs> I was so terrified when we went to go visit his city where he lived and mm -hmm. ate people. He like ate mm -hmm. one person because he was like starving to death and dying. Um, oh, was that person dead already? Probably, or was it an like on the road? Like already dead. 100% already okay. dead. And Alfred Packer was like, I just need sustenance to live. I'm so hungry. Yeah. We went to this restaurant where they like named like the cheeseburger, like the Alfred Packer victim or stuff like that. And I was terrified <laughs> that I was going to be next. <laughs> me. This like little kid a hundred years later. I still, and it's I'm... just like the fear of that, of Alfred Packer. Just feel your pit sweating because you're like, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. Hello, and welcome to the Spillway Podcast. I'm Lauren. And I'm Jenny. We believe three things. Hurt people can hurt people. White people are hurting. And our healing is possible. This is a podcast devoted to understanding the complex nature of living as white people in America. Without supremacy or shame. A few months ago, I started an organization, The Spillway, around supporting white people to work through perpetrator-induced traumatic stress, or PITS, and intergenerational trauma. And I offer this service with the acknowledgement that healing work is just one mechanism within a larger network required to sustain our collective movement towards racial justice. And that I seek to grow these services rather than redistribute where we put our efforts and funding. And to get this message out there, I've asked one of the most compassionate, ferociously tender, hilarious, and incredibly smart humans I know. She's the most smartest, Jenny Skinner, to join me on this podcasting journey. Jenny and I come from similar yet separate backgrounds, and importantly, we offer incredibly different perspectives, sometimes just by who we are as people, and other times by the different identities that we hold. We are committed to building compassion, understanding, empathy, and patience into the present and future of whiteness and white culture. We cannot change the past, but we can change the future through the actions we take today. And we seek to embody that through the work of James Baldwin, Sonia Renee Taylor, Kazuhaga, Rezma Menakam, Kai Ching Tom, and countless others asking for white people to, in so many words, get our shit together. And since the spillway 
there's been consistent feedback, sometimes within the same space, that white people are engaging this work with closed hearts and closed minds. This work can be difficult and beautiful. It is an exercise in vulnerability and unlearning perfectionism with real world consequences in an age of seven second judgments. We hope this spillway and our living in it can give others the courage that is needed to join in this work. We know that attempting to be vulnerable and consenting to learn in public is incredibly terrifying work, and yet we have to start somewhere. Conversations of race and racism aren't going away anytime soon. And given our incredibly different places in the world, we're trying to create a middle ground where white people can get together and talk and create action around the paradox of being white in the U.S., where we are simultaneously the perpetrators and the victims of race and racism. We seek to embody the work of countless activists of color who have been calling white folks to seek our own healing around race and racism. So here we are, two white people committing to the work of individual and collective healing around race and racism for white people. Healing ourselves is no one's responsibility but our own. Let's heal together and grow to stop the impacts of race and racism in the lives of people of color and our lives as well. Welcome to our podcast. Last episode, I asked Fred Jealous if the key to racial justice was more education or more relation, and he simply said, both. So often when we talk about preventative services within race and racism, we immediately look to education as the magic key, as if all of the book clubs in the world that sprung up in the summer and fall of 2020, following the murders of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd, would forever change the trajectory of the racial equity movement in the U.S. Well, they didn't hurt either. It was as if we could mentally untangle the emotional and embodied knots of American racism. We could intellectualize it. And if we're only thinking about it, we're not feeling it. And that's exactly what a lot of white people like to do when it comes to race and racism. I think this is why we struggled so much as conservative white people with the CRT question in the school board elections in 2021. We can talk about race, sure, as a historical artifact, but we can't, well, we actually should legislate that there shouldn't be any emotional component to educational units on race or racism. But I think this is also where we struggled too as liberal white people and that many liberals that I interfaced with, much like conservatives, didn't actually know the tenets of CRT. We just knew the talking points handed to us from either the media or our book clubs. As it currently persists, critical race theory doesn't translate into a reality understood by many white Americans. Beginning in Ivy and Ivy Plus schools throughout the 1970s and 80s, the crux of CRT was born in tandem and opposition with critical legal studies as affirmative action, marginally increased enrollment of students of color in universities. Still, educational systems hadn't updated their studies outside of the interests of white populations. And mainly led by students, CRT slowly took form to create meaningful action around schools, ostracizing curricula, and the colorblind culturalism of Reaganomics. And colorblind culturalism is primarily understood as the rights, social, and political movements to counteract the advances of the freedom movement. CRT varies widely from scholar to sect to industry, yet CRT's three foundational tenets serve as these touch points between the multitudes of theories around critical race studies. First is racism is commonplace, racism happens every day. Second, white people dictate the terms of racial liberation through interest convergence. Third, race is socially constructed. This list is introduced in Critical Race Theory and Introduction by Richard Delgado and Jean Stefanik in 2017, and it has served as required reading for many schools of social work and departments that study race and racism across the United States. There is tremendous truth in each of these statements, if they exist in isolation, and if a society doesn't change. 
And this brings about our first guests on the Spillway podcast, our first guest ever to talk about how we talk about the evolving nature of race and racism in society and how we do that in the classroom, the college classroom to be more precise. Amy Hillier, MSW PhD, is a social worker and an associate professor in the School of Social Policy and Practice, also lovingly referred to as SP2, at the University of Pennsylvania. Her research has focused on historical housing and public health disparities, including mortgage redlining, affordable housing, healthy foods, park use and access, and outdoor advertising. Her most recent research focuses on transgender youth and their families. With Stephanie Body, she co-directs The Ward, a research, teaching, and public history project dedicated to sharing the timeless lessons of racism and the role of research in affecting social change based on W.E.B. Du Bois's 1899 book, The Philadelphia Negro. Her teaching has focused on similar topics as her research. She led the required two-course sequence on American racism with an SP2 social work program and has taught in city planning, urban studies, public health and social policy focused on equity and social justice. She is the founding director of the Cross School Graduate LGBTQ Certificate and with Dr. Beverly Crawford, co-created the online course, The Penn Experience, Racism, Reconciliation and Engagement. It's so great to have you, Amy. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, I'm very happy to be here. First question that we have, where did it go, is Amy, um, talking about race and education has become increasingly controversial. Approximately 75% of white conservatives and 25% of white girls think talking about slavery and our history of racism in this country is bad. So how is that? How do you approach that within your classrooms? Um, that's a great question. And I don't have an, I don't have an easy answer. Sure. Um, I, I would say with humility. Because doing it and doing it well is not, you know, it's not something I take for granted. Sure. Um, and I, you know, I started teaching classes about racism, not because I was an ex- expert, but because I needed help sorting through my own sort of lens on the world. Um, and, and I think that my answer to that question is shifting. I've, there's been times where I've just wanted to to be a self-righteous liberal and say, this is right, this is what we do, that's wrong, and get on board, and, and, and right. I'm not going to budge. Um, but I think um, I had a colleague just um, introduce me to this fugitive pedagogy, which is about Carter G. Woodson, um, and, and the basic argument, which I haven't read this yet, but the basic argument is that, that Blacks learning to read was was, was out of bounds in terms of education. Um, and that, that, that teaching, teaching black people in public schools and, and, and you know, much less teaching civil rights history and about slavery, much less teaching critical race theory. So you know, there's, a, there's a very long history of resistance. So I think seeing, seeing what's happening now with legislators across the country kind of playing politics with what's happening in my classroom and their classrooms, you know, to think of that as, as you know, that's resistance because, because racism is so strong. Um, and, um, you know, to think of it as, um, you know, part of, we, we can't just, being right is not the answer. Addressing that resistance is. Um, mm. So if I'm not down with doing that, then I have no business doing this kind of work, I guess. Mm. When you talk about that resistance, Amy, do you think that these policies that are out there, you being an author of some policy yourself. Do you think that this policy has any kind of um, some time, some distance that it can stay in the on the books, or is it going to be overturned immediately? You know, that's a great question. I mean, similar with the, uh, you know, the the policies around you know trans kids. Um, there's some pretty terrifying, um, you know, abortion rights. There's a, there's a lot of changes that we could be seeing. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm always optimistic, um, but optimism has <laughs> has not sort of guided, um, you know, has I, I haven't been on the right side of sort of things in terms of I wouldn't have predicted all of that's happened in the last few years. So, um, you know, I do worry that this might be a, a larger pendulum swing, um, uh, you know, a larger form of resistance, um, and and we. Um, you know, it might, it might be affecting the reality and at least in some places around the country for a long time. 
it, what, what it seems to be is we're having extremes where we have, you know, I'm pretty protected at, at a private wealthy university in the Northeast. Um, and my kids in public schools here in Philadelphia um, are, are learning like everything I want. You know, we, we, there are no restrictions on our teaching. So I really worry that state by state, um, we could have very different public education. Um, and you know, families may be may have to to move, um, and it may start to influence where you know where people go to college and where people want to work. Mm. I am I'm definitely worried. What about you, Lauren? I feel like I, I'm I'm really confused as to what's going on with the conservative side of pieces, especially the from from my growing up in the '90s and early aughts. The conservative angle was always freedom and liberty do whatever you want to do. Just make sure that you're not hurting anyone else. And so now that there's this uh, anti-liberty or like anti-freedom framework um, that's like taking over the conservative side, um, specifically the Republican Party, it, it's rather unsettling. Uh, only in that like I used to know who I was talking about when I talked about Republicans. And I'm seeing this shift happen over my lifetime over how we're defining certain political parties. And it, it always didn't make a lot of sense to me as how Abraham Lincoln was a Republican, seeing the Republicans that I knew in the 90s or aughts when I was first learning about different political ideologies or parties. And it's it's fascinating to watch that happen in real time, but also to not know that you're like witnessing it in real time. You kind of have to like sit in it and then kind of turn back and reflect a little bit. So yeah, I'm, I'm terrified. And also uh, I'm really curious as to where this is going because they don't, what's the end game? And do they think that this is going to be permanent is something that uh, kind of keeps me up at night sometimes. I, I really don't know. You know, it's so, and at some level, like I can dismiss a lot of the conservative pushback as being, you know, just trying to rally troops, get votes. Um, but I also see some of it as like, you know, and so you critical race theory, like the tenets of critical race theory like should be very threatening to people who hold privilege that's based on race and whose wealth is based on sort of being white. Um, and so at some level, I see that this sort of increase in resistance is showing that people get it, that, that, that white supremacy, like we really are serious about attacking some of the, you know, the basic tenant of, um, you know, privilege in this country, um, you know, and, 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 and maybe maybe this is the last, you know, the, 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 la the last big sort of resistance, or maybe not. Maybe it's just um, one of, you know, many more decades of um, pushing back against, um, you know, civil rights. Um, you know, especially, I think maybe the most disturbing is actually the voting rights, the, the pushback on voting rights, because that's, yeah, that's, there's, there's, that, that has such implications and it's so, um, I think so disturbing, especially for folks who fought Jim Crow and, you know, in the South and, uh, you know, got the, got the right to vote. Do you think that uh, the role of CRT or its kind of scapegoating as it's happening in legislatures across the country, do you think that that's kind of uh, misdirected by what CRT is or are there misconceptions about what, are there good or bad stereotypes about what CRT is? Yeah, I do think that at some level, no one's taking the time to read, you know, Derek Bell or, you know, folks who are foundational to critical race theory, um, you know, because, and, I, and I've had colleagues, liberal, like liberal colleagues and academics push back. Um, and if, whether it was from a practical standpoint or it was a more deeper theoretical um, so I, you know, I do think that there's a superficial sort of knee jerk. It's, it's, it's a, it's a convenient, um, it's a convenient way to, 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 to resist. Um, because I think when people, you know, read it, it's about, it's about understanding racism as ordinary. And that's not the same as saying white people are evil and always have been evil and, you know, should feel guilt, right? But, but to say that racism is ordinary um, is to accept that, that there's a long history, you know, it's ordinary and it's, and it's not anywhere. Um, and that, that, the, that, that there's white self-interest in, in often in, in civil rights, you know, concessions. Um, and that, 
black voices and voices of people of color should be privileged to listen to and people with lived experience and you know and so in some ways i feel like these are just such basic these the, the, the tenets of crt are so basic um to to my understanding um and to you know a lot of you know contemporary authors that you know people aren't taking the time to understand it you know that said i do think for for folks who are deeply invested in white supremacy that um critical race theory is threatening and it should be seen as threatening um and the fact that it's made its way into you know public schools um i think is shaking the foundation for for some people hmm. amy i'm wondering how we hold contradictions within these conversations about critical race theory uh, and thinking about what Jenny was saying with the with that data that said that you know about 75% of Republicans don't want us talking about race or racism in public classrooms um, or that liberals at least the ones that I've been speaking to couldn't or can't actually name what the tenets of critical race theory actually are but still want them taught within public schools uh, these contradictions around CRT, how do we make sense of them? Uh, or how do we try to reconcile them within this larger conversation of racial equity and justice? Well, and I, like, we are all full of contradictions. Mm. And we so. we have this capacity, I mean, I think particularly white people, and, you know, I, I clearly identify as white being here, that um, we have these brilliant defense mechanisms, right? That protect us. Like why, you know, why do I have all the material wealth in the world that I do? Why do I have all the comforts and privileges, right? I have all these defense mechanisms that protect me and and, and some of those are racialized. Um, so I, I think that, you know, white liberals are as full of, we're as full of contradictions as, you know, white conservatives. Um, so, it, it doesn't it doesn't make sense it, you know a lot of it is irrational it's not it's not consistent it's not i think most of us do not have a consistent ideology that you know mm. that that runs through our parenting like how we treat one another like how we teach how we vote like how we you know and, and i you know i see this with you know when 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 you challenge parents who are in my peer group around their kids public school privileges right you see those contradictions you see those wait a minute aren't you for equity well well maybe but you know so so yeah i think that that's that's how i would understand it that we're all full of contradictions and um so looking for some consistency isn't going to work but uh, but understanding where people feel fear um and it's not something that you know we generally take time you know, we get angry, like I get angry at people, right. um, but to really take the time and say, let me understand your fear. Like what, mm. what, what is, why do you feel so insecure in this world? Mm. You know where I go immediately personally is shame. Mm -hmm. That's where I go. Instead of fear, it's shame as a, you know, I would consider myself liberal, um, but I go immediately to, to shame and, and self um, I don't want to say hate, but that seems too strong for where I am now, but I have in the past definitely hated myself for everything that I, that I benefit from, you know, in terms of race and racism. And, um, that's my knee jerk. Of course, mm -hmm. I'm working to change that, but, um, because that doesn't help anybody. But yeah, that's, you know, Amy, you're talking about fear. And I was thinking, oh man, you know what mine is? <laughs> Shame. Yeah. yeah. I wonder how shame and or fear is showing up in the classroom right now when we're talking about race and racism. Amy, do you have any experience with that? Yeah. yeah. And I mean, and showing up not just among students, but among faculty, right? Mm. I, I am. I'm really, I had... I've had a tough run, like as a, as a teacher in, a, in the racism sequence, both teaching online and then in person. Um, and, you know, a lot of growing, but a lot of pain, um, a lot of sort of anxiety on my part, um, some shame um, and disappointment in myself, um, you know, and, and being ill at ease a lot. Uh, and I remember that in the class, 
you know, 20 years ago that I teach. And it was during the, the OJ Simpson trials. And oh. I, white person from New Hampshire, had grown up and gone to a predominantly white college. Like I was, I just, I felt, I felt so clueless. And I, so I think, I think, yes, I think that, that shame and fear showing up, um, not only for white students, but a lot for white students. And some of it looks like, I'm afraid I'm going to say something mean or hurtful that I don't realize, or I'm going to say something inappropriate. And so I'll just, you know, I'll just be quiet. Um, and some of it ends up coming out as anger, like resentment that you're, you know, that, that, that I'm somehow, you know, you're trying to, you're trying to rewrite your, the narrative, right? Like, you, well, what we, you know, we grew up with some version of a narrative about U.S. history and, and about our ancestors, you know, our white European ancestors or our other, and, and, you know, to come in and to have unpack that and, and, and it, it, it forces us to change, you know, our sense of, I think, not just who we are as Americans, but who we are, you know, within our family and within our, you know, as individuals. Um, and that's so such hard work um, in class today, or it's hard to create a loving environment for that to happen. You know, people talk about safe, but I'd say like a loving environment, it's really hard to do that, um, um, especially across race, across class. Um, and the last thing I want to do is ask students of color and particularly black American students to come in, you know, and to be gentle with everybody because it just seems like, you know, like wait, you know, an inappropriate ask. Um, and so, you know, Lauren, you know this, we've, we've moved to a model that we have classes across race and we have some racial affinity groups to try to create a space that, that can, that can do some of that that work um with white people um mm -hmm. and i feel like we're just starting to lean into how do we do that well which is why i'm so excited about the spillway yeah yeah that's one of the things that i love the most is um lauren has created this space to have those conversations to explore these feelings like the fear and the shame and other things that come along with being a white person in america and um take it off of the doorstep of people of color. Because I think when, um, you know, George Floyd died, there was a lot of white people reaching out to people of color being like, what can I do? And, and that caused its own problems. And so Lauren has made, bravely made this space where we can come in and, and have these conversations like we're having now, which I think is really wonderful. And I think it's also hard too, because Amy, as you were talking about trying to create a loving space, that's consistent mm. with what I'm trying to do with the spillway, and especially the social media pages for the spillway. And they have become anything but that. Mm. In that as soon as we start talking about race, then, oh, wait, you're racist. Because the person who's talking about race is the person who's racist. Um, racism doesn't exist anymore. It was on death's doorstep. And you're bringing it up again or thanks Obama, everything was fine until Obama. And so there's this huge push, there's huge pushback that race um, should remain colorblind. We should go back to colorblind racism that was so prevalent in my, at least my socialization. I still remember growing up in Grand Junction, Colorado, there was a bus stop poster and there was this um, like a conference table and there were two like cutouts of people, just the, the shadows of them, the silhouettes, you can actually see them. And one person said, oh, ask that person over there. And then the other person said, oh, ask that Puerto Rican person over there. And then they crossed out the word Puerto Rican. And then underneath it said, a person is just a person. And I remember like thinking, oh yeah, a person is just a person. That person's not Puerto Rican. They're a person. And that was so uh foundational for me and how i started to think about race and i could barely even start to read at this point i think i probably had to have a parent like translate this for me so what the what was on the sign um but i am i'm thinking about it's a weird tangent um i'm thinking about um creating space creating love um and making sure that students our clients or people who are like entering the spillway or even our classrooms, Amy, are doing so in a way that they are also feel like that there's value there, that there's value in their vulnerability or within 
Well, I guess let's go back because in one of these other episodes, Jenny and I were talking about white women tears and can white women cry? Um, and so is it possible for white women to show up in a classroom setting and cry thinking about racism and how it impacts us as white people or how it impacts folks of color? I, I know the, 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 white, the reference to white women's tears and I've heard it in several different several different contexts, including a chapter in Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility. Um, and I feel like there's there's so many different levels, right? So the the level of of white women showing shock and dismay um, at you know like the realization like you know some of that can 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 be burdensome in a classroom and 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 white women being called out and, and, and then being the ones who are somehow the victim. Like I know those two things can be really problematic, but absolutely there has to be space, right? To, to cry about, you know, whether it's what happened under slavery to, to black, you know, to black Africans, to, to what ancestors did, to the implications for us today, to how hard it is to have these conversations, to what it's like to go home, to name your state and have Thanksgiving dinner with family that are so objectionable. Um, so, you know, I think that we are all, yeah, I think there has to be room. We have to make room. And, and I, I have not in my classroom, I think that maybe the white affinity space might be a better place for that because I think that's vulnerability. There has to be, there has to be room for anger, just as there is room for black women's anger, right? If that's sort of the stereotype, what white women's tears, black women's anger, and for, for, you know, for black women to cry. And, and I say women because most, you know, most of the people in our social classes are women. We have increasingly a number of trans and non-binary folks too, um, and a few male men, but it, you know, it, it really is, social work is, is dominated by women. So, um, you know, if, if we're talking about vulnerability, creating room for vulnerability, um, yeah, I think we absolutely have to make room for the anger and the tears. Hmm. This reminded me of the, uh, the ability to be on Zoom and go to Zoom classes for the past two years and engaging in social change conversations in the comfort of your own home. Um, and being able to tap into that from your kitchen table and how that can feel almost easier to tap into that vulnerability. And this was just my train of thought, but that it went directly back to uh, the work that you did on the Penn experience, racism, reconciliation, and engagement. You actually, could could you just explain a little bit about what this project was and kind of the implications of this work too, and what, they, what they've shown SP2 and Penn Dental? Yeah. You know, as typical of my career, you know, there was there was an idea that, you know, sort of was workshopped and actually came initially from students and then one that I ran with with another faculty colleague, but that has morphed into something much bigger and more interesting than, you know, than we could have imagined as the world has shifted. Um, but we, as you said, in, um, in, in our program at, at the School of Social Policy and Practice, our social work students take a two-course sequence in race about racism. And the second one is more intersectional and looks at gender and social change. Um, but, you know, two full semesters required. Um, and in, it, there's been conflict with that. We've taught it for 50 years, like five, zero years. And there's been conflict and limitations. Um, and it's it's the kind of thing that's never you know we never quite get right, um, but always trying to grow the course. Um, and students of color, and I'd say some other and, and white students who were more um, were more accustomed to talking about issues of race and racism, were 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 uh, lamenting that so many students came in. You know, this was you know mostly they were white students and young students coming in who had no preparation for the conversations, right? They were new to the conversations of the idea of white privilege and white um, um, white supremacy and you know and new to understanding about slavery and about their families and how they've benefited. Um, and that it just made it it made it really hard to talk in the classroom and to watch sort of folks having this steep learning curve and other people who were at a different point in the conversation. Um, you know, and I'm simplifying it, but but basically it was a class, it was it was feeling really, it wasn't working. Um, and so they, what this, some of the students suggested was that we have a pre-course that everybody, before they start the racism sequence, everybody have some 
um, basic introduction to issues around white supremacy and racism. And so we, we created an online class um, and we were thinking an online asynchronous class. So mostly for efficiency. So before anyone started in initially it was social work and then it became dental medicine, we, we teamed up together that we wanted to have folks at least introduced to some basic concepts. We wanted people to know about um, history of um, scientific racism um, and um, other forms of racism at Penn, you know, at the University of Pennsylvania. We wanted people to know about issues in Philadelphia, like, you know, like what was the slave trade like in Philadelphia? People don't think about that um, necessarily. And what are some of the current ways that racism plays out um, but also like implicit bias and microaggressions, um, colorism, xenophobia, anti-Semitism. Um, we wanted folks to know, uh, have a basic understanding of all these concepts before they came in the classroom. You know, so we put together in a package and expecting resistance, right? I mean, not necessarily resistance to the critical race theory that was embedded in that, but just resistance to forcing everybody to do this before, um, you know, and create carving out space. Um, and and then George Floyd was murdered and Breonna Taylor was murdered. Um, and we had in Philadelphia, um, you know, by that, that summer, um, all kinds of protests um, and police response and violent police response. Um, so the context in which we launched the class was very different from the context in which we created it. And it meant there was no resistance, right? There were, everybody was desperate, like everybody was desperate to like, we need to do anti-racism work and, oh, you have this course, let's, let's run with it. Um, so we're, we're, we're heading into our third year of doing it. Um, st still not meeting a ton of resistance, um, but, um, and now I'm forgetting what your original question was about it. <laughs> um, this is, that's really great and really helpful. And it was, uh, I think it's, what are you learning through this process? And how are how are white people receiving this, or what is the kind of feedback or the experience of the white students uh, and possibly even like white faculty members? Yeah, so there's been overwhelmingly we've had positive feedback, um, you know, and, and the students, you know, we have majority white students at in in these both of these schools, um, significant Chinese population, like Chinese born. Um, that's the biggest non-white population. Um, and then, uh, you know, a, a, a solid number of um, U.S. born people of color as well, like sort of in the in the mix. And, and then overall, we've had pretty positive response. Um, we definitely um, had some feedback that we weren't talking about anti-Semitism in a appropriate way or a thoughtful enough way. Um, and some of that frustrated me and some of it I, I learned a lot. Like I had a lot of conversations with folks to be People had to, you know, teach me a lot about how to do that. Uh, we, um, you know, in terms of resistance, you know, some of it I was able to dismiss a bit, but, it, you know, I think it's given me more empathy. What is it to be politically conservative um, and to have different ideas about racism? How much of this is ideological? Like, can we really say everybody needs to know about critical race theory? Um, you know, and, and, and there was a little bit of feedback. I'd say that, you know, definitely a small pushback that, that, that we're selling some kind of selling a like a where we're pulling a, a, a particular towing a particular ideological line um and i'm sensitive to that i mean i in terms of what the academy really still needs to be a place of lots of um competing ideas um there are some people who complain again very few of outright feeling oppressed as white people and you know i think that's part of this a larger narrative and i was not particularly sympathetic um to that um but the other stuff I've learned is just is like how people learn, right? So this idea of people being home alone to do this, in some ways, I think we created a non-threatening environment for people to do it asynchronous, like in their home, in their pajamas, um, that, that, that they weren't confronted. They weren't in cross-racial classrooms. Um, they weren't having anybody challenging them. They weren't having a faculty member challenging them. They weren't having microaggressions as they, you know, experiencing microaggressions as they're trying to learn about this. But Interestingly, the biggest uh, feedback we've had, the most common comment has been, I want to have discussions about this. Like I want, you know, in person, I want to sit down and that's really how I learn. Um, mm. So, I, and, and whether people will actually do that as we create opportunities for that, because there's, then there's more discomfort. Mm. Um, but I think, you know, what I guess I'm really recommitted as an educator to 
to growing, right? Like move beyond this sort of grade consciousness. And we definitely had some of that. Like, what am I, I don't know how I'm supposed to answer these questions. Like, what's the right, how do I get the right answer? How do I get the maximum amount of points? Like, no, this is not what education is about, right? I don't care if it's graduate professional education or it's preschool, right? It's about growing and learning. And some of that's growing and learning about yourself, you know, and that's part of your, whatever profession you're gonna go into. Um, so how can we create a space where where yeah we really we really facilitate and promote that mindset you know the growth mindset i mean this is you know some of the literature about how you teach people um and make you know op to be open-minded about learning um so to and and i think it also hits on some of the themes that that you all are talking about in terms of like how do we not how do we not raise everybody's defenses? Like, how do how do we make allow people to feel vulnerable? Um, and how do we how do we increase people's tolerance for discomfort? Right? Because and 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 say just because talking about race feels makes you feel uncomfortable, like you know to lean into that, right? To lean into that discomfort that that's where the learning is. Um, I, you know, I can't say we succeeded in doing this, but I I think I have much more clarity about um, about 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 you know where to push and what kind of uh environment that you know that i want to i want to help create for learning right that was really powerful amy mm -hmm. i'm to say that before i continue on um you reminded me while you were talking about the role of the teacher the role of the professor in the classroom and there's been this meme that's circulated specifically i remember it around the crt elections from this past November and I had to pull it up on my phone here and it says if your students know your political affiliation you have failed as a teacher teachers are there to help students think for themselves not think like you and I've always felt like this is wrong but I also feel like part of it's right I'm wondering what your your thoughts are on this I'll repeat it again if your students know your political affiliation you have failed as a teacher Teachers are there to help students think for themselves, not think like you. I, I think it's, I like, I like the, I like the kernel of truth in that, like, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I teach social work, right? So I teach social work at, um, in the Northeast, you know, at a private institution um, in a, in an overwhelmingly Democrat, you know, Democratic Party, Democratic city. Um, I'm not, I'm not getting, I'm not getting, you know, the general population. Um, so the idea that I would, I could somehow present myself in that setting is, you know, without making clear, you know, who I voted for, for president or how I stand on some of these issues um, to me seems, yeah, just impractical. Maybe if I was in a Nebraska high school history class, like, like I, that might feel a little bit, you know, public history class. But I also feel like, um, like students, what I feel like students, even graduate students are so hungry to see their teachers as people, like, you know, mm -hmm. to see their humanity. So the idea that I'm gonna show up without my values, that feels like empty, right? Like I, mm -hmm. I mean, I, and I, and I think I'm, I'm less concerned about political parties. You know, there's very few people who identify as Republican who, you know, are, you know, end up in my classrooms. But um, I identify as Unitarian Universalist in terms of my religious faith. And I'm, I feel like that's when I'm, I'm careful about, like, not pushing or proselytizing. But, but I also feel like I've started to say it at least once, like, just to sort of like say, this is who I am. Like, I'm bringing my whole self. I need you to bring your whole self. Um, you know, and I, you know, and I, 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 I hope I will have the judgment to when, when, when there's too much of me in that space. Um, and I'm, you know, and I'm sure there's been students who thought, oh my gosh, she, she lit it on really thick, um, as the parent of a trans kid, right? Like, or as, um, you know, as a, um, you know, as a social worker, or as a, you know, liberal religious person. Um, but yeah, I, 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 so, so I will not make any apologies for, uh, wearing my uh, ideological heart on my sleeve in my classroom. I, you said something and I, I've lost exactly what the words were, but um, that meme, I agree with both of you. I think there's like, you know, that little bit of truth in there, but it also assumes, right, that educators aren't people, you know, that they're just here to impart information, um, 
like facts, if you will, and that's it. And um, it, that's not any of the professors that I've or teachers that I've had in my life who've made a difference to me um, had that passion, you know, to to bring in a little bit of themselves as much as they felt comfortable with. And I think it makes a difference to how you receive information. And that we could, I love that you were talking about impartiality. To me, being impartial or being objective is such a white construct. This power of, oh no, I can actually remove myself from the situation and be this neutral observer. I don't think that that exists. I don't think it can exist. And I think that it exists um, as a form or as a rule um, or to exert a rule um, rather than saying, oh, hey, I'm a human too. I'm fallible. Uh, I have I have a vested interest in this too. One of the last things uh, that you were talking about though, Amy, before we wrap up is you were saying uh, to lean into uncomfortability. White people need to lean into uncomfortability. And I'm wondering, as I think a lot about critical race theory, to me, one of the second tenants after uh, racism is commonplace, right? Racism happens every day. The second I always think of with Derek Bell is interest convergence and that uh, true equity cannot take form, cannot take place until white people sign up, until white people sign on board and say, oh yeah, this is actually in my interest too. Um, I am hurt by racism or I think our school should be desegregated or, oh wow, we actually look really bad to the Russians right now. We should probably sign this 1964 civil rights bill so that they stop doing some anti-US propaganda. What is the role of trying to, or like how do we reconcile interest convergence and asking white people to be uncomfortable to decenter whiteness from the conversation? How do we hold these things simultaneously or can we, or should we not be? Is there maybe a fault happening or not? Intriguing question. You know, and I take, critical race theory is, is, you know, as a lens, not the only lens, but a lens. And to, to at least, at least as we look at policies and, and histories, not personal motivations, but if we look at sort of big changes like the 1964 Civil Rights Act, that this, this idea of interest convergence is really helpful, right? To, that power can, you know, power, people do not give up power, right? Like people have ways of protecting power and they may look like they're concessions to civil rights. Um, the, the, the call for decentering whiteness, um, I, I, like, I don't want my white students to take that as don't say anything in class, like don't speak up over to a person of color. Um, what, I wanted to, what I want decentering whiteness to be is just to, an awareness of how you as a white person who may have been socialized, you know, in in spaces, private institutions, you know, elite institutions like Penn, might make it easy for you to jump in and answer a question where might somebody a little longer hasn't been sort of socialized in those spaces to speak to to just to just be aware. Like, am I speaking because I have something really thoughtful? to say or am I speaking because it's really comfortable for me I feel really comfortable in this classroom in the dead space and so I want to feel it um I, you know I don't want white people to shut up um I, you know I do think that listening to folks of color is is a big part of you know and 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 and, and reading things written by people from different perspectives is a big part of it um but I don't I yeah I don't know that's an answer to your question about how you reconcile this idea of interest convergence and decentering whiteness. Um, I think it's more shining a light on, you know, and Du Bois talked about this, right? So W.B. Du Bois wrote The Souls of Black, which most of us know, brilliant book, right? About what it is to be black um, and to be considered less than, you know, in everywhere that he turned, but he also wrote The Souls of White Folk. Um, and, and he, it's remarkable that, you know, somebody who's write, writing so early, so this early 20th century, he's writing about, like, we have to acknowledge that whiteness is something, that, that, that it's not just about anti-Black racism, um, that white is, he didn't use white supremacy, um, but that, but that people use their whiteness all the time. And I know that is part of my insulation as I walk around through an institution like Penn, uh, which is a, you know, a tough place to learn and to be and to navigate. Um, and yet I do it with relative comfort. And some of that's because 
you know, I figured out how to do it. And a lot of it is because of my, I think my socialization as a white person um, that makes that relatively easy. I'm in, in starting the spillway, trying to be really intentional about not wanting the space to feel unloving, like we were talking about earlier, and for it to feel safe. And so often the feelings of discomfort don't feel safe or they don't feel loving. And it reminds me a lot of Bell Hooks, who was talking about our expectations sometimes as people to never experience or never want to experience any kind of friction or um, upset within our relationships, as if we've never had that with our partners or with our family. Um, because it's part of the inevitable and there's no relationship that is, it doesn't have a few rocky roads in it. Um, so yeah, I really appreciate you expanding on that. Uh, yeah, and I think just, just the role of conflict, like you talk about that, the role of conflict. And I mean, that's one of the beautiful things, Lauren, about knowing you and that, that there, there's been conflict and ideas and pushback. And, and for me, it's led to a lot of growth. It doesn't, you know, that's not the same as being uncivil or yelling at each other or, <laughs> mean but i think this idea that there can be conflict and, and disagreement that we all need to increase our tolerance for that right right and our <clears throat> intolerance for grace in those situations too um i was just thinking about a lot of the things we've talked about that fear and um that lean into the discomfort makes me think of um you know how prevalent cancel culture is and how prevalent um how much it plays a role in people not being willing to lean in um, to that discomfort because they're scared. Um, and white, white people, but everyone, you know, at least I believe that it plays a big role in people not wanting to lean in. Thank you for saying grace. That's such a, a lovely word, right? And, and not one that I think of in this context very often. Right. Um, and yeah, one I, right, it's, 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 it's not one that we use in the university, whether it's within faculty, because just what's playing out among students in the classroom plays out among faculty all the time, like these mm -hmm. tensions and sort of, you know, generational and intellectual and ideological and um, across race and um, these theories and, um, yeah, I just, I just, I think that's a really, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna carry that with me, that idea of, of grace. Yeah, Lauren's taught me a lot about grace. Trying, I'm trying to actually embody it myself because I feel like that's one of the things that uh, I learned so much in college, and I've learned so much through my life. But then, how do I embody it? How do I put it into my muscles, into my bones, and then breathe into it, and then feel it rather than just over it, intellectualize mm -hmm. anything, and that. I feel like is where the spillway just became this like natural extension of, oh, wait, there's no space to feel this knowledge, to to actually like sit in it and try to like try it on as much as you can um, right. in a space that is loving and graceful. So, Amy, the last question we have is um, if you could say one thing to white people that are listening and what would what would you say? Okay, we, we can do this. You know, we, we must do it. We must do it for our children. Um, you know, we must do it for our, the people of color we know and we, do, we don't know. Um, and we must do it for ourselves. It, it, um, I think, you know, you talk about the shame, the fear that the only way, there's no way around this, there's only through this. And um, so, there is there is no liberation for any of us without moving through this um so let's you know let's find ways to do this together amy thank you so much for joining us today it's my pleasure so it was such a nice way to to yeah to spend the afternoon with you too and i look forward to it and i'm i'm just i'm so excited lauren and i'm just starting to feel like catch on to like this work and what it means and um, yeah, it, it's, uh, it's, it's, yeah, it's really, uh, having a great impact on me. So thank you. And Jenny, it was a delight to meet you. It was so good to meet you. Thank you so much.
I like how she wasn't afraid to say that she had been wrong in spaces or not wrong, but like hadn't expanded fully or was still a work in progress. I really appreciated that because so often where when you're a professor or, you know, whatever you are, you're expected to be perfect at whatever it is. And I really think it speaks to her um, ability to make change as an educator that she was able to be like, yeah, I didn't, I went in and I didn't do this or, well, yeah, that made me mad or, (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know, just kind of, um, yeah, I really enjoy, I learned a lot. I learned, I could totally imagine her being just a great professor and someone to learn from. Yeah, it was really lovely to see and to hear, especially after like just coming out of grad school, uh, a professor being so vulnerable Mm, because that is so very rarely the case. It doesn't ever really feel like there's an emotional connectivity that you can have, especially when you're talking about such huge topics like social change and within social work. And I think even like when she was talking about being uh, your full authentic self showing showing up in a classroom, like how can you not do that? Right. Like, how can you teach without, okay. And I think, I think a lot of people think that teaching is just like, well, here, here's a timeline of events that have happened in the world, or here's how you, you know, solve a problem equation, whatever. And then all of the introspective work, I think people probably apply mostly to art or theater teachers or music teachers. Right. When, when that heart and that soul that she exhibited exhibits in her answers, it has to be there in whatever you're doing. Like any, any, (laughs) any professor who's made a difference in my life, whether it be math, science, you know, has believed in and loved what they did. And when you believe in and love something, you can't help but bring your passion to it. Nope. Nope. You cannot. Mm-mm. Yeah, I just really appreciate it. You know, I guess in my head, as a college dropout, I feel like a lot of people who are academically inclined or professors um, have a know-it-all kind of feel to them, which in a way I think they do know because, you know, they spent all this money on education and that's where they spend their lives and. But I think a lot of it too is um, an, an, a fear, like that same sort of where that fear and shame comes from to be like, I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> Which was what Amy, I think, did so well was she was just like, I'm just starting to understand what this means and what this is. And it's, you know, she was really taken with it and she was willing to dive in. And I, I think that speaks volumes. Of the type of person she is and the type of educator that she is. Right. I was very impressed. And I think too that there's the this like pushback of this is white privilege that you didn't have to have these conversations earlier. Mm-hmm. Or that, yeah, you can be newer to these conversations, but that's because you're white. And Amy, I think, in, as a white person is showing me, yeah, we can be late to the party and we're showing up. Right. Yeah, this and we're and showing up. that. Yeah, mm-hmm. and yeah, we can hold these multiple truths at the same time. Yes, there's this privilege that's occurring, and uh, Amy is doing a lot of like really amazing things. Mm-hmm. And then how can then I embody that and try to then do that in my own work? And taking risks in that could potentially, you know, make her career harder. Yeah. You know, make her trajectory and her career more difficult but saying, this is what's needed. This is the work that's needed. These are the spaces that are needed. Um, And using her, you know, privilege is such a weird word, Uh, but, but I guess using that for lack of a better word to, to open up these conversations and have the conversation that we had. Right. Disadvantages. I think advantages. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, For me going through social work programs in both the undergraduate and graduate levels, you are taught to have empathy, compassion, and understanding for your clients. doesn't matter who your client oh, yeah. is. You're going to have those things. Right. You need to have those things. Right. 
And that's the National Association of Social Workers Code of Ethics. It's just what you do. You have an ethical standard to meet of care. And if you don't meet that care, then people can file grievances against you as a social worker. And so it's not necessarily what to think, but it's, yeah, it is. It's a how to think, but it's a what to think as well. It's a, Uh oh no, every person has value. Every person is precious. Every person is precious. And I think Fred taught me to love and Amy taught me to have courage, you know, to, to look at situations with an amount of of like, okay, that's scary, but how am I going to enter it? You know, yes, I'm afraid or, you know, whatever, but how, how can I move forward into it? And I think both are needed. Right. Love and courage in the role of Mm -hmm. racial equity. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Those are two amazing points that I Mm -hmm. definitely feel as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like with Fred, it's about, for me, I think, yes, there's love. And I think there's also the the unconditionality of the human mm. existence. Oh, yeah. That to for me, sure. like, hits really hard. Mm-hmm. And then with Amy, there's just so much change that she's been trying mm-hmm. to enact, both within her own life, but also within the university and within her classroom, mm-hmm. that it feels like change is almost limitless or like that our power is limitless and that power power is not limited the whole concept of power is a social construction and so if you say that you don't have power how can you tap into it how can you build a connective power Uh, and power is only limited by your imagination like yes there's like political power there's social power but then there is your power one of the things that I learned in law school, it was from uh, Stacey Abrams, um, minority leader. Uh, and she talks a lot about power being infinite. Uh, that having limitless power means being a citizen with moral purpose to ourselves. We are not in traffic. We are the traffic. And that distinction uh, defines our ability to harness and uh, actually like embody our, our sense of, of power. And, and I, I really think that Amy, like our time here with Amy really drove that point home for me today. The, the limitlessness of our power as compassionate, understanding, empathetic, patient people trying to do good in this world. 